0: I would appropriately communicate that most interpersonal issues fall apart for wrong communication mm. or communication that is not fully understood or whatever. And at the end of the day, you have to think about what do you want your kids relationships to be like, not just what you want their finances to be like. That's good. So how are you going to protect relationships? How are you going to, one, have them feel like you really honor and respect them? One thing that we say is if you want trustworthy people, you have to treat them like they're trustworthy people. If you treat them like they're not trustworthy, they will probably not be trustworthy.
1: David Parks is the founder and executive chairman of Killpoint. David founded Killpoint in 1998 as a unique multi-family office and investment firm for ultra high net worth families. Prior to starting Killpoint, David led a financial planning practice for nine years with the Mason companies. Shortly before that, David also spent six years on Young Life staff. I can't tell you how impressed I was and currently am with David Parks. A few weeks ago, I had the tremendous honor of sitting down with David to discuss money management and probate. We discussed this question and a whole lot more in this very important conversation with the one and only David Parks welcome to an all new episode of probate navigated this is the one and only show where i dive deep into probate so that you can be the master of resolving your estate so that you have a compelling story to tell We believe that confusing complexity is the enemy to successfully resolving your state and an educated fiduciary with the right team is the very best way to defeat that enemy and win in probate. I am your host, Jonathan Smith, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with David Parks. David, welcome to the
2: Probate Navigated Show. Thank you. Well, David, listen. I, where I thought that we could start is is right here. I I find your story uh, fascinating, and your thinking fascinating as well. And this is a, amidst a world that can often be intimidating, namely money management. It can sometimes seem overwhelmingly complex, and so I thought we could start with this topic of fear. Uh, so many people encounter fear when it comes to <clears throat> and, and investing their money. And so how how do you, David, help people with this attitude towards managing, preserving or, or growing the wealth that they do have? So I think a lot of people
0: in all aspects of life are motivated by fear uh, and different things. It's uh, one of the strongest forces you have. And, people making decisions and people doing things. Um, When you, you look at finances and how people approach it, if you boil down most of the fears, people's fears center around, will I have enough to do the things that I want to do, or need to do, either the things for my family, my children, my educating my kids, my grandkids, medical issues, whatever those things are, uh, whether I can keep my second home, if you have a second home, or if you, uh, can pay off your mortgage or all the things that people have that are out there that they think about and they worry about, it comes down to, will I be able to afford them and will I be able to live this, this lifestyle, uh, that we think that we need or want, Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the day, the most important thing is for people to really understand how much is enough, how much do they need, uh, and how to quantify that. And in these turbulent environment where the market's going up and down, where you see businesses going bankrupt and other things, people look at the, the world with a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. and say, how can I ever figure out how much is enough so that's really the the biggest issue we call financial independence is trying to figure out what is financial independence what is the nest egg that I need that I'll be able to um, to do with that
2: that's good David I know you you uh, you and I deal with a number of similar conversations and and one of them that we both are dealing with is how do you actually help people think about the moment when their life ends and the life they've lived, the story that they tell or the wealth that they've um, accumulated now is, is transferred. How do you help people think about that moment when their life ends, especially as it relates to this aspect of do I have enough or will I have enough or will they have enough? Do you have any thoughts on how you help people think about, when their life ends or any stories that you can tell? I know you and I were just talking about the one with the, uh, the 85 year old sweet lady. Yeah. So yeah. When, when
0: people are trying to figure out what they want to do, and a lot of that has to do with, uh, preparing, uh, for their kids and what they do with their excess or what happens if they die with money. Some people would say, "Hey, I'd prefer just to die with spending my last dime," and that uh, that's a great concept. But you really are get you if you miscalculate when you're going to die. That last year gets a little worrisome. Kind of what someone said: "Life is like a roll of toilet paper; it gets uh, really fast as you get to the end." (laughs) Um, so, so there is this thought that as you are spending your resources at the end of your life, people don't like that feeling of seeing that their portfolios are going down and they are getting down to zero. Mm Uh, we don't like people to think that way. We don't like people to say, Hey, I'm going to plan so that I'm broke on the last day and I will have given away everything to my kids and my, and the charity And I die with nothing because at some level, some certain amount of people will misjudge that. And then we call it the rice and beans approach that you don't want to be living on rice and beans in your closing days. Um, so, So the idea of figuring that out and saying, hey, I'm always going to have a block of money. But once I figure that out, then I can give it. I can give it to charity, things I'm very excited about. I can give it to my kids. I can give it to my grandkids. I can set up education plans for future generations, whatever that looks like. Because when we have those excess resources, when we die, there are any number of things that can happen. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: But how do you actually say, okay, I'm going to plan with that excess, And that was what we were talking about. Um, We had a client. Her name was Becky. Um, She was an invalid. She was actually in a wheelchair. And and she had all her financial information in a cigar box that was in the side pocket on her wheelchair that she ran around the house without. She always had it right there with her. It was really funny. (laughs) We did so many different kinds of analysis of showing that she had so much wealth, she probably had 10 times more wealth than she needed to live on for the rest of her life. Even if she had round-the-clock nursing care or whatever it was, she was a very wealthy woman compared to what her needs were. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one, we, we, we probably had six meetings. Her, daughter, her children had actually set it up for us to talk with her. And we actually had a very good relationship. We developed a good relationship. I think there was a trusting relationship. But she was stuck on this thing that she'd look at schedules of showing, "Hey, you'll you'll have enough money for 50 years after you die, or whatever it is. Um, If you live to 110 and you have round-the-clock care, or whatever." We did all these analysis, and analysis didn't really make any difference until one day. We had her take all of her different investment statements and her real estate um, pieces of things that she had. And we laid it all out on the dining room table. And one by one, she took a few things and put them back in her box. Her little cigar box that she had. She said she took this, muni account that she had and she had this other stock portfolio that she had and she said that she wanted this one lake property that she liked to go in her wheelchair and sit up on and look at the sorry riverfront property she loved to do that she said if i have that riverfront property in my house and these two accounts you guys can do anything you want with everything else And that was, for her, the definition of financial independence. Mm. And it was still way more than she needed. But ultimately, financial independence isn't some analysis that some financial planner does for you. Yeah, It's got to be something that you internalize, that you feel like, hey, this makes sense to me. This is something that gives me comfort, that lets me sleep at night, that says, I know I'm okay. Yeah, and that's how you have to get to your number.
2: That's good, David. So, let me ask you this question: Some of the listeners that are probably listening to our conversation right now might be asking, "Well, how do I actually get to that point where I know I'm I'm okay?" Any words of advice for them? Yeah.
0: So one would be there. There are a couple ways of looking at it. The big thing is to say, uh, first, I'm going to take all my assets. I take all my assets and, and then I've got to, in essence, pay taxes on all those assets. So if I've got appreciated stock or I've got real estate or other things, whatever it is, we want to act like we're going to sell it all, pay the taxes, and turn it into cash and stick it in a box. So that gives you one number, what your resources are.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. The other thing is you need to take your annual spending rate. And that doesn't mean necessarily setting up a budget. We encourage people to have budgets, but a lot of people don't like that word. And so they may not want to have a budget, which is fine, but you do need to know how much you spend in a year. Right. And then as you look at what you spend, there's certain things we're going to do is one, we're going to pay off all your debts. So we would take out your mortgage interest because you know, we're assuming, you know, longer have a debt, we're going to pay off any student loans or things like that. Or, uh, we will, we'll, we'll put a fund together to educate your children that is going to say, okay, uh, how much do you need to educate your children? how much do you need for an emergency fund? Typically we recommend that people have six months to nine months of cash flow available Mm -hmm. to fund your lifestyle. Um, Those kinds of things. It could be that you've got, you've always wanted a vacation home or you wanted a timeshare, whatever those things are that you wanted, you say, okay, we've got a, Uh, An opportunity bucket, you might call, or a vacation bucket, or whatever that is. That when I retire, I'm going to spend a different amount of money than I am now. So, once you know what your cost of living is, you've got these buckets. You take your cost of living and your age, and you project that out. We like to be conservative, so you would project it out 10 years past your life expectancy.
2: That's good. So, David, let's let's transition to talk about red flags or mistakes that that people make. So, what what do you find are the most common mistakes that people make when they are trying to preserve wealth or transfer assets uh, from one family member or one family generation to the next?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things is. <clears throat> Putting things in a situation where they're tied up in probate for a long time, where they actually are in a situation where uh, for one reason or another, it's hard to get access to assets during probate that people need. Mm -hmm. So that's that's just one piece as it relates specifically to probate. Um, Another piece and probably the biggest thing, though, that is the most damaging is that parents don't communicate well what's going to happen. And I don't think you should communicate. to One, I would say it's very important not to communicate too early because as soon as you communicate something, people believe it's true and you can't take it back.
3: Mm.
0: So I've, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people that have communicated something. Uh, they did this estate plan. They called a family meeting or whatever and said, this is what we're doing. They said this to their kids. And then a couple years later, they wanted to change. And yet the kids had already decided, hey, this is is what we're going to get. And the interesting thing is, and this isn't to create more fear, I have unfortunately seen situations where kids believe that the money that their parents have is really their money. Mm
3: -hmm. And
0: so they're reluctant to let their parents spend it. Or they get frustrated when their parents spend it because they're like, you're spending my money. (laughs) And if you think about it, it's such a crazy thought because it's not their money. It's really the parents' money. And they should be able to do whatever they want to with it. Mm -hmm. So with that, I would say don't communicate too early. But it is important to communicate. And especially if you know that you're you're older and getting to the end of your life, uh, you should communicate things, especially things where... If uh, things may be unequal, whether they 're unequal in, in money or unequal in power, so most people do make it so that what they give to each of their kids is equal, and therefore it 's perceived to be fair and just.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: What ends up happening is that when one of the children is the executor or trustee, and that isn't clearly communicated why then a lot of times there's resentment on the, by the other children. Mm. And it usually makes a lot of sense why that person is. And you've, you've said you, you have a very good reason why one of them is the executor as opposed to all of them or two of them or whatever. And it may be just a very simple answer, but unless that's communicated, and the children get a chance to react to it a lot of times they will then create a huge problem for that sibling that you've chosen yes and that what the one thing you don't want is by doing something that it creates a wedge in your family once you're gone, and you can't fix it, mm-hmm. but I would say that's one of the bigger mistakes because siblings sometimes use the wealth or the power as a weapon against each other back and forth. Mm. Or if one does, one doesn't get the, the power or the money or whatever, the one that doesn't creates huge problems in the whole family dynamic, whatever that is. I've just uh, unfortunately seen too many situations where that has happened.
3: Yeah. And
0: also mis- just when mistakes in drafting are made, uh, believe it or not, attorneys make mistakes. And so I would, I, and people don't like to read these documents and they're very hard and, um, you know, they're boring (laughs) and people don't, people don't know how to understand the words in them. I would make sure you understand the words in your, your estate documents. Um, I would just read through it and say, is this what I thought it was going to say? Is this what I want to have happen?
2: Well, David, let's yeah. let, me, let me do this. I we, I know we've just talked about mistakes. What about bad recommendations? I know that's similar, but it's also distinct because some of the individuals listening to this conversation are going to be sitting down with um, financial advisors and hearing any number of recommendations on on what to do with the money that they've recently inherited. So I'm curious what are your thoughts on recommendations to avoid or to listen to cautiously?
0: Yeah, I would say probably the most common estate planning strategy is that you, you take your assets. If you don't, if they're more than you want to give to your children is at, at the time of death, let's say you may have young children, you may have young adults and you have more money. You just like to give them at a specific time. You set up a trust And we could, we, um, we, and then that trust pays out over various times, like at 30, 35, and 40, or whatever it is. So you, uh, that's, that's probably the most common. And the interesting thing is, it's just because that's what attorneys do and what people have always done. But if you think about it, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. We call it kind of defer and dump.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And what attorneys, what, what parents, if you think about it, you should really think about what you would do if you were alive. So if you were alive and somebody turns 25 or it turns 30 or whatever your first date is, would you give them that money? And generally the answer is no. Yes. So to the extent that you can find a person, And I don't like institutions, but if you can find a a person who you trust and who knows your kids and will actually be interested and involved, I would encourage you to find a person or even two people if possible. So then you've got two people holding each other accountable on what to do with your money and then give them basically the power to do what you would do. And then you have to communicate with them what you would do. Mm-hmm. That is a far better strategy than saying, hey, just mandatorily I'm going to give money out or mandatorily it just it's held in trust until they're very old. Now, there are any number of things that you want to do and you should really think through how you would do it, what you would think. Uh, the, the main thing I would say is people don't think about if I were alive, if I were still around, What would I do and what would be healthy and beneficial for my kids? So I'd say that's one. the other thing is this thing that I alluded to earlier where you have uh, siblings asking siblings to do something that they wouldn't that basically asking siblings to make up for poor parenting. Of the other siblings, hmm. so you've got one of your kids or whatever is acting out or not doing things, and you want to um, you want to help uh, take care of that. If you're going to give one sibling again the power to do something and hold assets and decide, hey, if you're living your life right, then you can get that money. And what I'm saying sounds normal, but yeah, okay, it makes sense. You shouldn't ask a sibling to do that. I can just tell you how many times I've seen parents want to do that, and they don't communicate with that child. They just say, "Hey, it's up to you to figure out when your brother should get the money,"
3: <laughs>
0: and that's just unfair. And again, sets up for bad family dynamics in the future, and right. it sets up for Um, you know, not being a situation where there'd be reconciliation between siblings, which is at the end of the day, most likely what most people would want.
2: That's good, David. And and here's an assumption, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the questions that I ask every guest that comes on is if they, if they have a giant billboard with anything on it, uh, getting a message out to people in probate, what would it say? Would yours say, uh, what would you do if you were alive? Is that the general principle?
0: Uh, yeah, that would be a great, uh, that would be a great, um, communication is to when you're, you're thinking about it, uh, is what would I do when I'm alive, if I were alive and how would I deal with the people? whether that would be even giving money to charity. Um, So how would I set it up uh, so that if I were alive, this is what I would do. Now, some people would say if they rule from the grave, they don't want to rule from the grave. And that feels like ruling from the grave. Mm. And I would argue with that from the standpoint of, yes, you don't want to set a lot of crazy Criteria necessarily. You may, in certain situations with certain children, have that. But for the most part, you don't want to roll from the grave. And that's very different than saying, What would I do if I died? Mm -hmm. Um, If I were still, sorry, what would I do if I was still alive? Um, So I think the other thing related to that, what would I do, is I would appropriately communicate that most interpersonal issues fall apart for wrong communication
3: Mm.
0: or communication that is not fully understood or whatever. And at the end of the day, you have to think about what do you want your kids relationships to be like, not just what you want their finances to be like. That's good. So how are you gonna protect relationships? How are you gonna one, have them feel like you really honor and respect them? One thing that we say is if you want trustworthy people, you have to treat them like they're trustworthy people. If you treat them like they're not trustworthy, they will probably not be trustworthy. Um, So all these different dynamics that you would say, interpersonally, can really inform how you set things up and structure things.
2: That's fantastic. more than a
0: billboard. Sorry about
2: that. No, that's fantastic, David. I'm glad that you filled that out. It has been a real pleasure having you. If uh, any of our listeners would like to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
0: Yeah, I would say they can uh, contact me at dparks at keelpoint.com.
2: Perfect. And we'll also include that in the show notes, but... David, thank you very much for your time and your generosity here and sharing the insight that you have that's been developed over the years that you've been serving people. We are very grateful for you taking time to stop by here on the Probate Navigated Show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful.
1: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David. And if you did, folks, please be sure to let us know. You can connect with me on Twitter at I am Jonathan SM also be the first to listen to future episodes and previous episodes by subscribing to the show all of our episodes can be found on iTunes Stitcher and other podcast platforms just by way of reminder you can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at medium.com backslash at probate journal and until next time and as always thank you for listening and have a Fantastic.